welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today we're speaking about a writer that some of you will never have heard of. Norman Lewis was the 20th century's most underrated writer about plays. He had an instinct for being in exactly the right place to capture traditional ways of life on the brink of modernity. But his books are far from dry. He also had an unerring eye for the absurd. His life was just as fascinating as the worlds he brought to life in his books. Before he was able to live from his journalism and novels, he earned money as an umbrella wholesaler, a race car driver, and the founder of one of London's first camera shops, which grew into a chain with outlets in several cities and that gave him the money to fund his trips. He served in the intelligence corps in the Second World War, and he was sent on spying missions to Cuba by the creator of James Bond. He lived the sort of life that seems lost to us today, and he remains one of my favorite writers on plays. Lewis's biographer Julian Evans joined me to talk about his life and work. Julian's the author of Semi-Invisible Man, The Life of Norman Lewis, and of Transit of Venus, about his own travels in the Pacific. We spoke about Lewis's escape reflex, the subjectivity of witness statements, and the past as a place. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Julian Evans, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. This is an episode I've wanted to do since I started the podcast, and I'm really uh, glad to have you here. I absolutely loved your biography, by the way. It's uh, easily in my top three. Up there alongside um, uh, Martha Gellhorn by uh, Caroline Moorhead and McNiven's bio of Lawrence Sterl. I mean, this was such a fantastic read, and we'll only be able to scratch the surface of this man's life. So some of my listeners uh, may not be familiar with Norman Lewis or his work. So who was he and how did you meet him? Norman was really the best not famous writer of his generation, I think. He was born at the pretty much at the beginning of the century and he died uh, at the very beginning of the 21st century. So he died when he was 95. But he spanned a century, the 20th century, which I think we admit was one of the most eventful uh, in human history. And uh, he had the, some say the enormous good fortune to witness an enormous amount of that. But Norman had a knack of perceiving and sort of pre-perceiving things that were going to happen. So when he wanted to escape from his very boring, dull childhood in Enfield in North London, an endless suburb, one of the endless North London suburbs, he went to Spain. But he not only went to Spain, he found himself in the middle of the Asturian miners' strike, which precursed the Spanish Civil War. And that was really the beginning of everything. He was then in Vietnam just before the French uh, were forced to leave. He was in Burma just before uh, it was taken over. Uh, he wrote the first book, the first really in-depth book about the Sicilian mafia um, in the 1950s. He just was so on the spot because... For one thing, he was very interested in world events. And for another, he was a fantastically restless and footloose person who was always looking for the next story. And how did you meet him? Uh, I met him. I, I class it as one of the, the luckiest experiences of my life, that I happened to be working as a, as a junior editor. For the first sort of 10 years of my career, I worked at, as a as a publisher's editor, and I was a junior editor to an extremely good publisher called Christopher Sinclair Stevenson at Hamish Hamilton. Hamish Hamilton was an independent publisher who had published great writers from Sartre to James Thurber and Camus. And Christopher Sinclair Stevenson had a very good eye for not only finding new talent, people like William Boyd and Peter Ackroyd, but also. Uh, for spotting people who had 
as it were, fallen by the wayside. And Norman's reputation, having been pretty high in the 50s and 60s, had kind of, his star had waned a little bit and faded. And Christopher spotted that he was writing a new book, which turned into a, an absolutely marvellous book called Voices of the Old Sea about his, his own life in Spain. It was a sort of travel memoir of Spain. And because Christopher was an incredibly generous man, he, he, he said, Julian, I want you to edit uh, Norman's book. And so I had lunch with Norman and, um, and my boss. And I came across this incredibly wary and <laughs> suspicious and therefore uh, almost speechless person uh, in, in a restaurant Covent Garden. Uh, it made for a very awkward first 20 minutes of lunch. And then he suddenly decided we could be trusted. And the stories began to pour out of him. And thereafter, uh, when I, as, as his editor, it sort of transformed into, a, I think, a father-son relationship in, in a way. Uh, he, was, he was in his own sort of silent and... Uh, really quite un unavailable emotionally. Uh, but in that kind of way, he was nevertheless a, a, a man whose warmth you could feel. So, so we developed over the years that I was editing him. And, and even when he moved publishers uh, and I left publishing, uh, we had this very sort of understood relationship, which was never, never explicit, but was, I, I felt his warmth and his, his generosity very strongly. You write that he was self-invented, that he had no mentors, uh, no tracks of middle-class privilege to follow, no Oxford or Cambridge or country house upbringing to ease his way, unlike most every writer who would become his contemporary. So how unusual was that at the time? I think it was very unusual. I mean, when Norman started writing in the 30s, people like Patrick Lee Farmer, Robert Byron, Peter Fleming, those were the princes of, of the art of travel writing, if you like, between the wars. Uh, and, you know, they, they were aristocratic or semi-aristocratic. They'd been to Cambridge or Oxford. It was very much that kind of world. Norman was a pharmacist's son from Enfield, didn't go to university. Uh, he was a bit of a wide boy, sold umbrellas, sold cameras. Um, but again, there he had great taste. He was He was the first, I think, importer of any any size of the light, the new Leica portable uh, 35 millimeter camera and uh, his photographic shops in Hoban and then across the country, R.G. Lewis, named after his father, were absolute uh, destinations of choice for, for any um, 35 millimeter camera enthusiast. And that's how he financed his early travels. So do you think that that's... Um having no connections of that sort that contributed to his resourcefulness like he had to find a way that these others didn't to to fund these things and he had some astonishing an astonishing range of jobs i mean he was racing cars at one point too wasn't he oh yes 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 and and there again you know what i'm going to say you know the the quality came through what cars did he race bugattis hmm. he was one of the first people who who understood the the grace and beauty of, of, the, of these and speed, obviously, of these motor cars. Yes, and he, he he I think he was in the last race at Brooklands before the Second World War. It, it was a disaster. Um, you know, he 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 spun off and, and very nearly had a bad accident. But uh, but yes, that's what he was doing. Uh, he loved cars. In fact, he loved cars up until the 1960s. He would he would go to the motor show every year and. Uh, and he 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 sold a, a a piece about the mafia to the New Yorker, and immediately went 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 to the motor show, and I think bought a Pontiac that was too long for his garage, and and had to build a new garage. But I think <laughs> then it was probably you know he he sort of realised that he'd reached peak automobile at that point, and, uh, <laughs> and his enthusiasm dropped away. But uh, I mean, in, in in a funny way, it's a really good question because he he was very resourceful, and he dived into all sorts of activities but whatever he touched was always uh to do with somehow you know he went for the the the, the greatest quality he he there was a point in his life as he had a sort of dandyish period and and he he bought his uh his suits from Savile Row 
up until a few years. I mean, they weren't worn for many, many years, uh, but uh, but they were beautiful suits. I did once see his wardrobe. So what do you think that gave his, uh, this lack of a traditional education gave him, gave to his writing that, that the others didn't have? Oh, uh, that's the self-invented bit. I, I think his his education was, he, he was very much the autodidact. He taught himself to read and to appreciate good writing. When I say he taught himself to read, he taught himself to read the good guys. So he read all of Shakespeare. He read the Bible front to back uh, two or three times, he claimed. And and I'm pretty sure it's true because there is something both very spare and, and lyrical at the same time in his writing, which comes from those sort of terse, attic uh, Bible sentences, actually. And uh, he, once, he once said he thought very little of modern stylists. And so his, his own style, which was a style of, of description, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but, but it was a style of description that was based on being himself as invisible as possible in the text and yet you knew he was there so what he was doing was he was channeling whatever he was describing and you were receiving it you know as if somebody had put i think luigi barzini the the italian writer once described this as uh, it was like eating cherries one after another and it was as if norman just put this bowl of cherries in front of you and you you had direct access to them from his prose that's very interesting an interesting observation too, because there is something timeless about his writing. It just it doesn't fit any sort of current trends or whatever. You said also that he plunged into the Russian classics. He claimed to have read a classic a day or four days for War and Peace. At the end of it, he had read something like a hundred of these books, courtesy of a library that he had access to, and then started again and read them over again. So, what did the Russian classics bring? Do you think to his style? I think there was a very strong narrative. Uh, thread in in his writing, and I think that's what he got from Tolstoy and Chekhov. He was very fond of Chekhov, and a, and a love for ordinary people. I mean, Chekhov made it very clear to anybody who asked him about his writing that what he was interested in was how people eat and sleep and breathe. These are ordinary people, you know. These are sort of woodcutters and villagers and serfs, peasants. And those were the kind of people Norman was interested in. Also, the people who belonged to the places where they lived. Norman wasn't interested in anybody else. He wanted to find the people who belonged in the places where they lived. Yeah, that's a theme that I want to come to in a second, too. But it just made me think when he said this that um, I wonder if he was so interested in ordinary people because his own background was so completely out of the ordinary. I mean, he came from a pretty bizarre family. Yes, that's a really interesting question because... On the one hand, there was Enfield, soulless, dull. Well, he once described an, an Enfield Saturday night as nothing with chips. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think on the one hand, you could describe his, his life in Enfield up until you know, his twen- early, late teens, perhaps very early 20s, as being very dull. But on the other hand, he could make it come alive and he could turn Enfield into, into a place in which perhaps not everything could happen, but certainly he could paint Enfield as vividly as he could paint Naples or Guatemala. He always denied that. He, he always said it was really, really almost impossible for him to write about England. Up to a point, he's right, because he, he didn't write very much about England and Wales, of course, where he where he was exiled as a, a child after being bullied at uh, um, at his school in Enfield. We had such a remarkable cast of characters to work with as well. These mad ants in Wales that he lived with, and then his parents becoming uh, spiritualists and hosting seances and things like this. It's just amazing stories. Yes, that gives me the opportunity to say some a little bit about his growing up because he had two brothers who both died. And he had an older brother, Monty, who he was especially fond of, who died, you know, this was the 1910s, so the medicine was not terribly advanced. He had a, he had a kidney uh, infection and, and just died. And so Norman grew up as an, an only child with two parents who were pretty much beside themselves with grief 
Uh, and when spiritualism came along in the, or in the wake of the First World War, there was this sudden grasping at straws and the seances began in the Lewis household and their, his parents' enthusiasm for spiritualism became so great that they actually had a spiritualist chapel built in their garden. So there were his parents trying to make the table move and there was Norman almost sort of crawling under the table to try and get away from this horribly embarrassing situation he found himself in. So you spoke about his restlessness and this need to um, to get away from this place. Tell me about what you called his escape reflex. He was obviously involved in the Second World War. He was born in 1908. So he was, he was quite old when, when the war began, but he nevertheless got himself into the intelligence corps and uh, as, a, as an NCO, uh, non-commissioned officer. He was a corporal and then a sergeant. He was in something called field security. Uh, he was in North Africa. And his duties in North Africa were they, were, they were occasional and they, they allowed him a lot of leeway. So he would often find himself in, in odd situations, being invited to dinner by local businessmen who wanted to curry favour with the occupying allies. Uh, or he would go out into the desert on his motorbike to visit local uh, Berber uh, clans and tribal chiefs. And then, of course, he went to Naples and spent a year in liberated slash occupied Naples after the Allies drove the drove the Germans out. And when he came back from the war, he always said that it was a terrible thing to say, but it had been one of the most extraordinary and and fascinating uh, periods of his life. And I think that is the point, certainly the point I identified in the book, where I think his life sort of broke in two halves. And there was the before the pre-war period when he was he really wanted to get out of Enfield. You know, he's a young man, he had a taste to find life more interesting than the North London suburbs. And so he did a couple of trips. Interesting, very interesting trips one to Spain and one to, to, to Aden and the Yemen. Um, but then after the war, when he realized that he could write about the places he, he, he'd gone to, he had had a little bit of success before the war, but he had sort of, the war crystallized his writing and he'd also crystallized this escape reflex, I think. And it meant that he came back and like a lot of, men found it very difficult to adjust to peacetime life because the war had been very exciting. And then instead of shrugging and just knuckling down and getting a job and, you know, running his camera shops, he said, no, I can make this work for me and, and I'm just going to travel. And he would go away, he would come back, and he by then he had a flat in Orchard Street um, in uh, London's West End, now next to Selfridges, and would stay there for a little while. And you might think, well, that's a very pleasant way to live. But he would just get very restless, and he would have to go again. And he had the resources to do it because his camera business had by then expanded to, I think, six shops. And so the money was coming in, and, and he could finance these trips, plus he was being published. You've got a really good quote in your book here about that, how the war shaped his future journeys. You say, the intense pleasure of his warriors became the banner and device of his post-war adventures, the reality that he was always seeking to recreate. So in the exhausted domestic peace of mid-1945, all his problems, literary and personal, would begin to reduce to one problem, how to retain the happiness of war. I just had to find a way there of, of just really pinning the war on him or really pinning him to the war, because I do think it was the formative experience of his life. And it, and that's not just me saying that, that's various things he said to me also over the years. Yeah, you, well, yeah, speaking of which, you've got a quote here from him. He said, the war was something fantastic. I hate cruelty of any kind. I'm a passionate person. But every minute of the war, all the time I was abroad was absolutely paradise. That's absolutely right, and and I mean it wasn't without its it, it, its dangers, but what what it brought with it was this 
this idea that every day something new would happen. Uh, and that was something that also really informed and determined the kind of journeys he made. So, for example, I said to him once, what's the most boring place you've been to in Norman? And he, he said, California, without a doubt. And I said, why is that? He, he said, well, I could go to California and I could find that I would wake up every morning and know that nothing new or surprising was going to happen that day. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful, you know, and and I mean, this is the sort of acme of the place that plenty of people want to go. Ah, oh, I want to go, you know, California. Go and live in LA. And there's Norman saying, "No, take me away from all this. I want to go to a kind of a tiny village somewhere in Venezuela or somewhere in Guatemala. I'd be much happier there with the people who belong there." Yeah, this is something that you talk about that was present right from his earliest book on Spain. You say that the justification for the journey was that very soon irrevocable change might make it impossible to see these things as they were now. To, to play devil's advocate on that for a minute, I agree with this, but um, hasn't it always been like that? Like I remember Derville Murphy talking about the her stories of traveling through Ethiopia right before the arrival of the motor car and Western consumer goods. And she told me that even at the time she knew the world she was seeing was about to vanish forever. It seems to be a common traveler's trope, but but in his case, I mean, the re this really was was true. Yes, I, I think that's right. Didn't Evelyn War write a book called "When the Going Was Good"? Uh, Norman, of course, was well, there. You are Evelyn War, another of the aristocratic, semi-aristocratic travelers of that period. Norman, of course, was in a similar vein trying to find the things he could see before they changed. But I think what you say is absolutely true from the point of view of everywhere, everything, always being on the point of, of, of change. Well, you quote um, a friend of his from Rangoon who said that Norman saw the romance going out of the world, that we're the last generation to be able to see strange cultures in their unspoiled condition. The world's modernizing, Americanizing, and the enchantment is being squeezed out. But I, I remember thinking the same thing um, when travel changed from sort of the pre-internet to the internet and smartphone era. You know, the, it really was so cut off before. You could drop off the map back then. And it seems to me the current travelers are missing so much, like this vapid age of Instagram travel, you know, with this deluge of identical selfies and people all posting the same pictures with the same filters and couples who pose in exactly the same places with the girl in the summer dress, you know, and the bro in his straw trilby. And it's just, there was something different that the past was a totally different place. So even, even in our time, I think those of us who started traveling, you know, before this happened, it, it was an entirely different world. So even more so for a man like Lewis. Yeah, I think that's right. I remember uh, sitting in a, an Indian restaurant in, in London talking to a friend of mine who was heading for, for India. And I'm afraid I berated her for, for, for saying that she got her Walkman, her Sony Walkman <laughs> packed and her playlist of cassette tapes packed. And, and I said, no, 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 you should, you have to leave all that behind. And, you know, when you compare that kind of argument with, I mean, let's not be a couple of oldsters sort of, saying that the young aren't doing it properly but when you've got one sort of travel against your interesting i like the quote the vapid age of instagram travel um i i think something's been lost but unless you knew what was there before you kind of you don't you didn't know that so you can't know that it was lost but when i for instance spent five months in the pacific uh, traveling before I wrote my first book, the only way of staying in contact with people in back in England was to write a letter. And then in the letter say, please send any reply to the post restaurant, the post office in the next island or, or the next island, but one that I'm going to, you know, and I, I think I didn't speak to any of my friends for five months. And that was Norman's, Norman's uh, existence too, because he was he was totally pre that era. I don't think we're being a couple oldsters either um, about pointing this out, because it's not that uh, younger travelers aren't 
aren't trying to do these things maybe or perhaps that they don't know about them but it's something that that I noted down a bit later on that you that you observed in in your book you described his interest in in places that are not subject to civilization's bureaucracies to the dull organizing frameworks that make life orderly predictable and secure and for lewis and for for guys like us dull so these places are robbed of the potential to surprise and i think the the smartphone sort of extends that to everywhere that dull bureaucracy because it you don't just turn up in a village and you don't know where you're going to stay or with a guidebook that's you know 10 years out of date and may or may not these places may not I've, i remember going to, to places in tibet where the whole town had been bulldozed and like nothing in the book not even the maps made sense anymore you don't have that experience if if this device in your pocket tells you exactly what to expect around the next corner right from where you're going to be posing for your photos so it's not that i don't know that it's the travelers who who are failing in that sense but this this horrible bureaucracy and this tyranny of technology has has crept into every every corner of the world it seems Putting both those words, bureaucracy and technology, into the same sentence indicates a kind of, uh, yeah, it's a sort of portmanteau malaise, if you like, because when I was traveling in Europe, I, I was working as a journalist, doing quite a lot of journalism in the 1990s, which is sort of pre-internet. And by chance, I stumbled on Ukraine. Uh, I'd been asked by a French magazine to, to write a piece about a river trip, and I, uh, a river trip from Kiev to the Black Sea down to Yalta. And that was 10, 12 days of discovering Ukraine, and I ended up in Odessa. Now, Ukraine was a charming, unknown country. I think it was unknown to almost everybody until February last year. But what entranced me about Ukraine was this, A, there was very little technology because it was a poor Eastern European or Central European country um, in which things only just worked. But also, once you got your visa and you were there, because things only just worked, everything was improvised. And when you improvise, and when things aren't sort of, everything isn't bureaucratically laid out for you, surprising things can happen surprising interesting funny sometimes dramatic things can happen and and i think that's what made me fall in love with ukraine and of course now very dramatic things are happening in ukraine but that characteristic funnily enough i think is connected to the resourcefulness of the ukrainians now in their opposition to the russian invasion and so I do worry that what you describe as bureaucracy and technology combined leads us to become rather more passive consumers and residents of the world than we once were when all these things weren't mapped out for us and predicted for us. Yeah, I think that's very true. And this new Europe that we find ourselves in right now was also a world that Lewis maybe foresaw in his very in his very first book, or at least perhaps it mirrors the times that he was living in. He said, it merely was and still is my private opinion that if you want to see the world, now is the time. There are omnipresent signs of a wrath to come, embracing the possibility at least of a return to the dark ages. In such a case, the only travelers will be refugees and the hedger is likely to supersede the pleasure cruise. And that could, that could just as easily be today. That's such an important message, I think, for everybody. Every traveler and everybody listening to this is now, now is the time. If you want to go to a place, don't wait. That is so interesting, that, that early quote, because I remember him saying something similar, or rather, I remember Don McCullen saying something similar that Norman said to him when he and um, Don McCullen, the photographer, the great, great photographer, when they started traveling in the late 60s. Yes, absolutely, absolutely spot on that, uh, that we've arrived at, at, at that point now. Um, there are you know ways to if you like reverse this trend and there are and there are ways to sort of skirt around it and still enjoy the world but i, I think the resourcefulness that is required of us now to to reject if you like the pre-programmed pre-packaged world that we're being sold everything social media to the ease of get travel you can do that but uh the resourcefulness is required is going to be 
is going to be great. I mean, I was in Ukraine in November and December uh, for three weeks. I stayed. I was living in Odessa, and we were being occasionally bombed. But I, I had a very nice hotel. Hotel rates had gone through the floor because obviously there are no tourists there. Uh, I had the most fascinating three weeks I could possibly have had surviving and, and meeting new people and going into villages and help, helping with some aid distributions. And, you know, that's obviously not everybody's idea of a holiday, but I can tell you that it's the most fascinating thing to, to do and the most fascinating way to travel if, you, if, you, if you've got a reasonable tolerance of risk. You talk about finding such communities in places sort of at the edges of the map or places that are in strife. It makes me think of uh, something you said about Lewis's escape reflex. You said that it was counterbalanced in a sense with what you referred to as his antinomic belief system. In part, he was motivated by his own escape, but then he also uh, was attracted to the sense of belonging in traditional cultures. Could you say a bit about that, like this this drive to get away, but at the same time, this yearning for the sort of belonging that he saw in traditional places that he feels maybe were lost in his own culture? Yes, I think he did feel that. I think from his childhood onwards, where he was an outsider, he was very badly bullied at school for being intelligent and into his adult life when he when he was really seriously bitten by the travel bug. He wanted to find places where he could belong for a little while. He was never the kind of person, though, who could be at home in any one place. So he went to very far-flung places. He went to places we know. He went to Spain. He went to, uh, he went to Guatemala. Everybody goes to Guatemala. Students on their gap here go to Guatemala. He went to Irian Jaya. Very far from place. I went there first, by the way. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I lent him all my books, and he was very interested about it. And he made a fantastic Channel Four documentary about it. He was really, really fascinated by the places where people belonged. India too. Uh, he didn't go to the the normal places in India. He went to the tribal parts of India because those are the places where there was the least population movement, you know, the people who lived there had always lived there. And he really liked those kinds of communities. But if Norman hadn't been born in Enfield, is I think quite a good parlour game to play, because I think the answer would be, would have to be Italy. He said that, you know, if I could have chosen to be born in any particular place, uh, I would have chosen Italy. Was that because of his experiences in Naples? Yes, uh, that, that's where it started very much. Afterwards, when he had a family, he, he actually took the family to Italy to live uh, in a part of a castle uh, just outside Rome. And he was thinking of settling the family in Italy and having a go at living there. Um, but after six months, he, he realized that uh, even Italy wasn't going to be a place where he could settle down but it was perhaps the closest he ever got to finding an ideal place where where he could settle having said that for a writer he had a beautiful house which he bought very well relatively cheaply after uh, in, in the 50s and uh, in Essex which is a place no one ever goes to so he had all the calm in the in the world sorry to the people of Essex, it's a. There are some very beautiful parts of Essex, but it's particularly badly served by public transport, by by rail links, and even the people in Essex would would admit that. But what it gave Norman was a fantastic sense of calm. So when he came back to to his wonderful wife Leslie, who is still with us, by the way, still a great traveller herself. I've just come back from five days in Portugal with her. Um, but when he came back to Finching Field and the parsonage where he lived and had a beautiful garden. He was a very, very keen gardener, and his garden was full of wonderful things, many of which he brought back from, from his travels. He could then write there because it, there was complete calm. So if you like, he, what he did, instead of just settling and being a calm, contented person settled in one place, was he found the ingredients 
for a life that interested him. And some of it was settled and some of it was very restless. I want to talk a bit about his writing style as well. At many points in the biography, you come back to Kurosawa's Rashomon and the way the film interrogates the impact of subjectivity on recollection and the, the infinite variety of eyewitness um, testimonies. Why was this important to Lewis and why is it important to understanding him as a writer? Because I think he became utterly convinced that there is no such thing as objective truth or, or, or there's no such thing as objective eyewitness reality, which is what Rashomon is all about. Thereafter, I think that gave him the license to write in the way that he did to produce his version uh, of the world or his version of reality in whichever part of the world he, he was. In fact, one of his collections of journalism is called A View of the World. That's, that's what you get with Norman. You get you get, I think, what you can really call uh, his own personal celebration of the world and his recreation of it in words. And this is what I mean. He's a very, very pictorial writer. And he, one of the reasons I think we still really respond to him now is because whenever you read him, you see what he sees. He, he has this extraordinary ability. The other reason is because he's like Scheherazade. He tells another new story every night. That's why I think he's going to still be read in 100 years' time. We should uh, read a couple little uh, snippets of his descriptions. I, I don't want to give the sense that the, you know this is, his writing is at all dry. I mean, he's, he's such a, a great sense of the absurd. And as you said, this great uh, pictorial uh, way of writing I have to try to decipher my own scribblings from my notebook here. These are just things I wrote down as I was reading him. I think this is from uh, the Burma book, Golden Earth. Like He, he describes um, a van full of people. The transport in Burma, for those who haven't been there, is, is often private trucks that people are just crammed into you know, for, for long journeys over horrible roads. And very much like what he wrote about it, so it hasn't really changed that much, at least 20 years ago when I traveled there. But he talks about the post wagon discharged its passengers like seeds exploded from an overripe pod. And in another uh, in another place, he talks about these people he would meet who would speak in sort of um, inherited cliches that they'd gotten from, from watching too many movies. Uh, Cinema Argo ran like a rich vein of fool's gold through their speech. It's just such a perfect image, fool's gold, you know? Yes. To, to give a sense of the, the absurd here, this is a slightly longer bit, but do you remember there's a scene where he's... Um, I think he's in Pienolin, uh, which is which is the Maimyo, the British hill town. And he wanted to get a lift to another town. And there was a lorry that was leaving, but he had, he had just missed it or something. So a Jeep driver picked him up and they were determined to catch this thing. But he's describing and describing the Jeep. He said, my driver was handicapped by a mysterious ailment of the Jeep, a dysfunction, which, which I've never met before or since. We would accelerate sometimes to nearly 50 miles an hour. And then suddenly the car would be seized by a violent convulsion whose epicenter seemed vaguely located in the gearbox. <laughs> once, once in the grip of this palsy, the driver would be obliged to bring the Jeep practically to a standstill before the tremors died away and we could accelerate once again. <laughs> it's just great stuff. It's such a joy to read. Yeah, and what you notice in those descriptions, particularly the first and the last one, for example, the, the overripe seed pod, is that Actually, it's very pictorial, and there's an element of cartoonishness about it. So it's kind of, it's almost hyper-real. P.G. Woodhouse, Raymond Chandler, anybody who can come up with really successful, unusual similes has got a good chance of keeping the reader's attention. But what Norman did was he injected this, this little bit of cartoonish humor, which not only made you see things, but it made you laugh at them at the same time as you were when you were reading. If I remember right, the, either from your book or from something he had written, that this he developed this eye during the wartime and writing about Naples or the post-war period in Naples because you, you kind of had to write about the absurd or notice the absurd to cope with just the absolute misery that these people were living in. Like There's, a, there's this uh, scene in um, a restaurant, he goes with this this um, sort of disheveled, poverty-stricken aristocrat, and they have the the fish. They show the fish for to, around to the tables to diners, and 
but the, the head was of one fish and the body was of another, another much cheaper fish. <laughs> so they would just try to pull a bait and switch. Yeah. And then at the end, he said something, something about some, you know, we opted for chicken or something. Yeah, catching, catching the absurdity of these scenes within misery was, was really interesting. This is not to say that he was just an Englishman chuckling at funny foreigners. Because there's another scene in Naples 44 in a restaurant. It's the same scene. This comes immediately after. Yes. There's a scene immediately after that in Naples 44 where a group of girls are led in to the, the restaurant and, and they sit down and it's a while before he realizes that they are all blind. This this is just such a horrible, tragic thing that he describes just in a couple of sentences, but it it's like a gut punch. And, you know, it, it just reminds you that he was as good at portraying with without leaning on it. He was as good at portraying uh, unhappiness, wretchedness, despair, tragedy, as he was at the 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 funny things and the absurd things. I photocopied that description and kept it in in a. It's such a beautiful ending to a chapter. Shall I read it to you? Yes, yeah, please. I expected the indifferent diners to push back their plates to get up and hold out their arms, but nobody moved. Forkfuls of food were thrust into open mouths. The rattle of conversation continued. Nobody saw the tears. Until now, I'd clung to the comforting belief that human beings eventually come to terms with pain and sorrow. Now I understood I was wrong, and like Paul, I suffered a conversion, but to pessimism. These little girls, any one of whom could be my daughter, came into the restaurant weeping, and they were weeping when they were led away. I knew that, condemned to everlasting darkness, hunger and loss, they would weep on incessantly. They would never recover from their pain, and I would never and I would never recover from the memory of it. You know, even just reading that now, I have a lump in my throat. Yeah, it was the same when I tried to read it to my wife as well. <laughs> yeah, it's really remarkable. So you said that his best books were witness statements, and this is a this is an example of that. Just these scenes that he witnesses and transcribes. I, I think his best books are uh, witness statements. It's not the only thing a writer can do, but I think it's one of the best things a writer can do if they can do it well, because you're left with a picture which, again, if it's really well done, a picture that is indelible. One one thing about books is you know they're they're never subject to a new performance. You know you can reinterpret a, a symphony you can reinterpret a, a film or a play uh you can't reinterpret a book the, the same things always happen from start to finish but if you do it well enough it's worth rereading and rereading and rereading and i think that's what that's really where norman's incredible quality of prose comes in you said that one of his other capital themes was to see cultures as subjects and not objects Yes, I think that's right. He he didn't he did try to and I think succeeded in immersing himself uh inserting himself into cultures and allowing them to act on him rather than just going to a place and describing them. So that we've talked a lot about how he produced these glorious descriptions of the world and that's sort of what he used to say that he he liked to produce these revealing little sketches of, of the world but I, it, it's more than that he i think he was able to insert himself i think you know like, like a knife into into those cultural situations mm. to understand them to have them explained to him and to bring them back to us in their reality, not as not not as I say, not as an object, but as something living. 
he has a remarkable sense of capturing sort of the cultural continuities as well of a place, like the things that are just unchanging of, of the character of the people or the culture. So like going to Burma, I, I went, I spent a month there in um, 2002 when it was still pretty closed off and a bit difficult to get to. And in reading his book, I mean, it's very little has changed. The same regions were inaccessible or difficult. The same modes of travel prevailed. The people, people's character was very much the same. I remember meeting a guy in, um, up in the Mandalay was just as boring as well. I remember meeting a guy in uh, some uh, up around the Shan Highlands somewhere who was complaining about Rangoon that people were wearing trousers and he didn't approve of this. You know, they weren't wearing longi anymore. So it's amazing how um, relevant some of his his books still are from that perspective and capturing those core aspects. You said also that he he was always catching these places on the verge of modernity. To quote you here, you said he was often called a lucky writer. Skirmish's spectacles, wars seemed to find him. He seemed to have the right place, right time knack, but that wasn't the case. Rather, his ability was to see where things were happening, to hear where history's orchestra was tuning up, and then once there, to observe as closely as almost anybody could what would be likely to happen next. So where, where did this come from? Like he said himself, any, with Indochina, with uh, Vietnam, anybody could have seen it coming, and the Americans should have seen it coming. Why did he see it coming when others didn't? If I was special pleading on Norman's behalf that he had these supernatural power uh, to, to, to predict what was going to happen, then I apologize uh, now to the readers. But um, I think what happened was roughly what um, happened to me uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, I, because I was interested in this country, first of all, extremely superficially, and then I actually got married there, uh, and I would go back every summer. I saw when Putin invaded Georgia in 2008, and in fact, I wrote a piece about it saying, if we're not careful, Ukraine's going to be next. So, you know, I think Norman's interest in the places that he went to, his, his interest peaked and he was looking for subjects, so he did a huge amount of, of reading. He would, he he would say to himself, for example, I, I think Burma might be an interesting place to go to next. And then he would read about it, and then he would think, yes, definitely. And he, I think he did it with India, and he got it wrong, and the, and the book was cancelled, and and he 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 did something else. So I think what he was doing was being interested in places, and then thinking, well what is likely to happen. He read the papers, he read magazines, and, and then he went. Uh, and, I, and I think he just had that knack of being, the knack of being interested. I, th I think, actually, it's a truism about life. Now that I'm a bit older than I, than I was, I, I, I kind of recognize that the more interested you are in a situation, the more you're likely to know what's going to happen. You know, be involved in a place, um, a country, a situation, and you will develop an instinct for the kind of things that are going to happen there. And you also mentioned India. That there's seemed like there are quite a lot of trips that he did that didn't result in books or stories. That he, he would go there, invest a lot of time in reading and travel time, and then just decide, you know, there's no story here. So we're not seeing that as well. No, that's true. I mean, he was the interesting thing about, well, the two, two things I want to say about that. Uh, one is that, yes, he did that a lot. And it, and it shows that he was conscientious and he did try or he was careful uh, only to write about the situations and the places where he thought he would really get a good book out of it. So Guatemala, for example, although he wrote magazine pieces about Guatemala journalism, he never wrote the book that he intended to write about Guatemala because it, it defeated him. Uh, it was so complicated and, and, and so lengthy uh, that he never got round to it. But the other thing is that we're talking about Norman, the adventurer, Norman, the writer about place. Um, I, I'm not a great lover of the word travel writer, uh, the phrase travel writer, but, but okay, I, I'll accept it. But he was... Above all, he was an adventurer and a writer for me, but he saw himself as a novelist. For a very large part of his career, he saw himself as a novelist. The books of travel were the books that he 
wrote between novels because he knew that Cape would publish them. And uh, what he really wanted was to be, and this is a bit flippant to say, but he would have loved to have been as famous a novelist as Graham Greene. Whereas I think what we've got, I'm sorry, Norman, but what we've got is that you are as great a writer as Graham Greene, you just do different things. Lewis wrote more novels than books about travel, didn't he? It must be very close. And it's, it, it's very close. Don't don't pin me down on that. It's very close. Yeah. He wrote a lot of a, a lot of novels. We said the failing in his fiction lies in his difficulty in processing emotions out of events like that. He wasn't able he wasn't able to go very deep into himself, so he couldn't imagine himself fully into the human interiors of other people. Yes, I think that's right. If you think about the landscape of of, of love and loss and desolation that you find in a, in a Graham Greene novel and passion, actually, those are all emotions that Greene himself felt. I mean, we think of him as a sort of quite a, a, a stiff upper lip Englishman, but he wasn't at all. And uh, and I think Norman just didn't have that sort of access to his own emotions. And so his travel writing instincts were at full tilt in his novels. So there, there are some fantastic descriptions. But in a funny way, the characters who are most alive in his writing are in his travel books. Yeah, you had a great description of that. You said, at their best, Norman's compositions, his nonfiction and journalism reveal his novelist instincts at full stretch. While at their best, his novels attract by an authenticity of action and a sense of reality as political commentary. Yeah, I'd stand by that. I think that his talent, for, he had a talent for narrative, but it was this emotional problem. Uh, there was something stuck in him. And it, that goes back to his childhood. He had a very restricted, confined childhood. So what do you think are his best novels? I mean, what would you recommend for a reader today? Oh, I think The Volcanoes Above Us is a great novel. That's set in Guatemala. Funny enough, I also like the one he wrote late called A Suitable Case for Corruption, which is set in set in Libya. There are some duds, um, but those those two are very good. And there is also one called The Tenth Year of the Ship, which which I love. It's interesting that you mentioned his sort of personal guardedness being a barrier to his novels. He also wrote two two volumes of memoir that are seem very much uh, constructed in a sense, is is reconstructed his past. Like how do you approach that as a biographer? How do his versions of his life differ from your versions, and how do you tackle that? And that's a good question. Uh, uh, as a biographer, I approach it with a pinch of salt um, and and with humor, because we know that when we write about ourselves, we want to tell the story that we want to tell. We don't necessarily want to tell another story which may have happened, but which perhaps reflects less well on us or, or, or which is not as amusingly organized or as fascinating. And I think that Norman's challenge to me as, as a biographer uh, was simply to check up on him and, and try and say, look, that isn't exactly what happened. This is what happened. But nevertheless, Norman's version has all the uh, virtues, or all the all the delights that you would expect, and I wouldn't if I wrote an autobiography. I wouldn't expect it. Well, uh, let me know. Let me put it the other way around. I would expect to fictionalize it too, in in some sort of way, because I I would want to tell a story about myself that was, uh, or about my life rather, that that I thought would be both interesting to me and interesting to the reader, and and you know don't forget the reading here. Norman was Norman was very keen as a storyteller. He really enjoyed people's reactions to his work. You know, he really liked to entertain in the, in, the, if, in the most serious sense of that word, if you see what I mean. I guess in a sense, we all have a version of our own narrative that we think is true or that we think motivated us at the time. And this, the story we tell ourselves, you know, and it's obviously the story that you're going to tell others because you think that's what... Uh, what motivated the course of your life, often in, in a much more noble way than than was actually the case. So I, I could see that in in writing about his memoirs as well. 
you made a really brilliant observation. I thought you said uh, in his so-called autobiographies, Norman isn't writing about himself, but a new set of entries in this personal encyclopedia in which the past is a place as much as any of the places he has been to and written about. That's really interesting. This gave me some really a really great uh, insight into a project I've been hoping to write about for a while and couldn't quite see a way in. The past is another country or a place that, uh, you know, I've been there, but a younger reader hasn't. I think that's hugely important uh, about Norman, that uh, for him, the past becomes a country to visit and then to apply the same eye, the same skills to and come back with a report about it, which is as entertaining as he can possibly make it. So in that sense, the volumes of memoir are as much travel books as the stories of place and, and journeys. At many points in your book, you include passages that explain the biographer's dilemma, some of the things we were just talking about, the nature of the form and questions about the ability to come to any accurate understanding of, of the truth of a life. Why did you decide to take that approach? Well, you, you've got to remember that I didn't want to write this book. I know it's 725 pages long, but I really <laughs> only wrote it to because I loved Norman so much and I couldn't bear the thought of anybody else writing this biography. It's not because I think I'm the world's best biographer. I'd never written a biography before. But to me, the well, one thing is the British and to a certain extent, uh, the Anglo-Saxon world loves a biography. To me, that world is slightly compromised by the way in which writers, biographers write about their subjects perforce. Uh, they inevitably write about their subjects at the end of their life or when they're already dead. So the trajectory is set and they, the biographer then tells that story. But what they don't get, unless they pay great attention to it while they're writing, is the sense of muddle, confusion, mess, unpredictability that assails us all on our journey through life to the final great defeat. And that is a, to me, that is a absolute necessity to describe that process by which something unknown becomes known. You know, I look at Norman's notebooks and I see his tiny spidery writing and the ink is starting to spread. And I'm thinking, wow, these don't look exactly the way they did the day he wrote them. But then what about the day before when those events hadn't happened and those pages were empty? You know, and, and that process, that, that the, the, the process of becoming is absolutely vital in, in a biography. And I just really wanted to try and get that across because there was nothing to predict that, that Norman, out of Enfield, the pharmacist's son, who was a bookworm in the Carnegie Library, was going to turn into, uh, I think, you know, one of the great English writers of the last century. So anyone interested in travel or writing about place absolutely must read Norman Lewis today. He's one of the greats, as you say. But why should the casual reader read him? Oh, I think because picking up a book of Norman's and opening it, you will immediately be taken into a world you've never expected to enter. It's not just a lost domain because it's, it's a place in an era that may have vanished. It's a way of seeing things that very few, only really the really really great writers can 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 provide and to that extent it's it's a bit like picking up a piece of treasure and finding that you own a piece of treasure so there's so much in your in your excellent biography that we haven't touched on i mean his his intelligence gathering trips to cuba for ian fleming and you know his groundbreaking work on genocide in brazil his life with his crazy aunts in, in uh, Wales. So I really hope listeners will run out and buy a copy. It's called Semi-Invisible Man. It's an incredibly good read. And then raid the shelves at Eland for, for some of the best of his writing. So Julian, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed this. It's uh, fantastic to talk with you. It's been a great pleasure. I've really enjoyed it too. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorth.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. Thank you.